In business and life, relationships are everything. Welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, where we interview top business leaders and learn how they build relationships with their teams, clients, and those that promote and refer them. Here's your host, business trainer and leader of the People Catalyst team, Carla Nelson. And welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, Andrew Sherman, again. Maybe I'm getting quasi-co-host status soon, you know? <laughs> I don't know how many shows I have to be on. Well, I'm just, I've got a lot to say right now. Maybe I'll run out of stuff to say, but... Oh, I don't know about that. After, after 26 books, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I think you're always well, going to have something. it's great to be back. <laughs> it's great I, to have you, Andrew. I, it, thank it, you for having me again. And it's a really interesting time, right? So the last podcast we had was pre-COVID-19, right? Where we're talking about these intangible assets, right? That companies can have that have a real tangible value in the company. But let's kind of rewind that a little bit right now in regards to there's so many companies that are really looking at what this effect. I mean, we had 2008, how many baby boomers hung on? right? Because they were like, hey, I got to build up my enterprise value um, because 2008 was a kind of a hardship. And then now all of a sudden we've got this, you know, COVID-19 challenge. We've got what, 250 billion just basically exhausted out of the uh, uh, marketplace. And so, you know, what do you have to say in regards to that effect that that's going to have on valuation, especially with this 40 to $50 trillion in assets, the largest amount of assets that are, have ever been transferred, right? Since the beginning yeah, of time in the whole world. Exactly. So there's a lot there. I mean, one of the things I just want to say, coming back to our, our previous podcast together, you know, we didn't have, because uh, it hadn't happened yet, we didn't have some of the concrete examples to talk about. And I just want to start the podcast, if I could, with a few of those, because I think there's lessons to be learned um, for all of your listeners. You know, you don't have to be the size of some of the companies I'm about to mention. But one company I'm particularly proud of right now is General Motors. Uh, General Motors was given a task by the White House to build ventilators. They retooled their plants. They harvested their intangible assets, their know-how, their systems, their expertise, their manufacturing capabilities, their processes, their channels, and they were, they were producing ventilators within 11 days. Now, if you think about General Motors, I mean, you know, people aren't really buying that many cars right now. It's not a critical asset relative to other assets that our society needs. And they took everything they know about building complicated machines and applied it to ventilators. And 11 days, I mean, Carla, that's remarkable. That's insane um, pivot know, right there. <laughs> yeah, same pivot. Clothing and apparel makers pivoting and reshifting fabrics and tooling to produce surgical gowns and masks and PPE. Distilleries retooling their plants to not make gin and vodka, even though we all need I know, it, and uh, making so hand sanitizer. And, and, exactly. I saw a couple and so, of those articles. I was like, right. well, beer. Uh, Hand sanitizer. Yeah. Okay. I mean, actually, yeah. when you think about it, there's a lot of similar. Don't mix it with tonic. Right? Yeah, you're not going to like it very much. But <laughs> the, 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 um, the ingenuity that, that underlies um, those steps, that retooling, repurposing ability to pivot, is inherent to the companies 
Number one, ability to harvest their intangible assets. But number two, it's inherent to their enterprise value. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that as we get deeper into this topic uh, throughout the podcast, this theme will be recurring. You know, what is your your company's ability and how quickly are you able to adapt, to pivot, to retool, to repurpose? Because I do think that, you know, there is a bit of a thinning of the herd happening right now. Mm-hmm. And if you want to be part of the herd that survives, which I know all of your listeners want to be, and you want to be on the buy side of some of the distressed M&A that's going to be coming up um, as, the, as the herd thins, uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to be able to demonstrate to the capital markets and, and to buyers or to sources of finance to be a buyer, because that's another audience that, that we should talk to, right? is Absolutely. How, how quickly we're able to adapt, to pivot, to retool, to repurpose around these extraordinary conditions. And I feel so strongly about this. Um, I've been preaching it to anyone that will listen, to clients and non-clients, to podcasts, to articles. Uh, the most recent CNBC article I did uh, or interview I did for CNBC was all about this very topic of the need to retool and to take inventory of your skills, take inventory of the things you're good at and ask yourself, what does the market need right now? What do my customers really need versus what they want? Because with consumer discretionary spending down and unemployment up, the things that people want are going to be set aside for the things that people need. And, you know, I, I think there's so many companies that are so much more capable of doing more than they're doing now, but they have to do a little, you know, uh, uh, introspection and do a little strategic planning and really think about, you know, maybe with the help of outside advisors, um, but really think about what their core skill sets are and how that's going to affect short, medium, and long-term enterprise valuation. No, I totally, uh, completely understand that. And even think about from the buyer side you were talking about, Andrew, is not just one company, but think about being able to have these distressed assets and three companies that do three different things. But when you put them together, they might make a really great, you know, potential asset that exactly. you're thinking out of the box, right? You're using that ingenuity that you're talking about, the innovation of being able to pivot and then go, okay, what is the uh, market want? Just like GM did, right? I mean, cars and ventilators in 11 days. And then how do you think that people should think of the uh, buyer side of this aspect? Because I think, you know, if you can get the financing and, you know, there's probably going to be some distressed assets. What is it? 90% of people sell because they're just burnt out. Yep, exactly right. So after you're burnt out, that's not forward thinking. That's not, you know, looking at enterprise value. That's basically tapping out saying, man, I'm done with this. Well, here's the other thing that's been coming up. A lot of small business owners that have been interviewed lately on the press, and this is before we recognize that the $350 billion is gone, it's spent. I mean, unless Congress authorizes another 250, that, you know, all the Christmas gifts have been handed out and there's no more gifts under the tree. And so a lot of business owners that are being interviewed that I'm listening to are saying, hey, I don't know if I have the fortitude and the patience yeah, the staying and, power. Uh, to, 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 to get on the other side of this. Yeah. And so, it, and, and remember, the reason that's an important point 
is it doesn't mean their business is flawed. It's what you just said a second ago. They're burnt out, but that doesn't mean their business is burnt out. So I might have a very viable $5 million business, but I just can't, I don't have the energy to get to the other side. So that's where I might be willing to sell that business at a distressed valuation mm -hmm. for the privilege of exiting. Yeah, and, well, and, and think about now, that, Andrew, like on the backs of, you know, 2008, this is not that long after 2008, so many people held on, oh my gosh, right? After that, correct. to say, I wanna, you know, build my enterprise value prior to sale, some of them exited, but there's a lot of them that are still on the books that, you know what, they some, were still holding you know, on and they were, you know, Right. Not not, what's the, they probably should have sold sometime around November, December of last year. Well, I, I hate to serenade you, but you know, notwithstanding the Motown song, ain't no mountain high enough. There, there, are, there were some mountains that were too high, right? There were mountains that could not be overcome. And that's what caused some distress selling. But to go back to your question, which is the really fascinating one, what do you do if you're a buyer, right? If you're a buyer and you're putting together a business plan that says to sources of financing, hey, my name's Carla and I have a vision to buy these distressed companies and do a roll up or a consolidation or whatever you want to call it, you know, you need to demonstrate to the source of capital that you have, you know, the MFD. What do I mean by MFD? The magic fair dust. How are you going to sprinkle after each closing, your magic fairy dust onto these companies to begin finding their true intrinsic value. And, you know, if, if for every $5 million business out there, it's available to be bought for a million or two million or some lower uh, EBITDA multiple, um, you know, that's how people after the last great financial crisis became millionaires and billionaires because yep. they had the, the vision and the fortitude to be a buyer against the grain, but also to see the inherent enterprise value of yeah. companies that really, the company wasn't distressed, the founders were distressed. We're distressed. Okay, okay, and you hit on a good point here, Andrew, that I'd like you to elaborate on is that market capitalization, or you said market cap, right? Um, and yep. then the enterprise value, right? Because those are two, you know, two sides of the same coin and it's a super thin coin, but it's just the, you know, lens that you're looking through, right? In regards to enterprise value and then market capitalization. Uh, so can you elaborate on that? And then um, also, you know, sprinkle your magic fairy dust on how people can look at those two different things and put them together. As you said, it created millionaires and billionaires. I mean, more people are made yep. uh, millionaires and billionaires during times of distress than during, you know, the economic boom. Very much so. So, you know, look, for many, 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 many years, we've been valuing, valuing most companies. Now, there's certain industries that vary, but most countries, most co uh, companies in most industry sectors are valued as a multiple of EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So if we look at the, you know, if, if you're in an average market and an average industry, you know, you might be at somewhere between four to six times EBITDA. If you're kind of a beat up company, it might mm -hmm. be closer to 3.5 to four. If you're a real rock star, it might be higher than six, but let's just say that 
the four to six time is the market cap, what the market is willing to pay uh, based on uh, a multiple of EBITDA. And, you know, in a seller's market that can climb up, I've seen multiples of EBITDA into the double digits mm-hmm. if you're lucky enough to Especially get it. Especially with and data. Reason, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, look at LinkedIn. And, and, Exactly. Never, never threw a profit, yeah. but then all of a sudden well, Microsoft saw well, the data the, side. The of problem it. with LinkedIn is, you know, anything times zero is still zero. They had zero even <laughs> somehow got twenty six billion from Microsoft. So, you know, it's always nice if you can get twenty six billion times more than yeah. your uh, and that's the exact EBITDA. example of the intangible asset. So their intangible asset was data. It's my right. favorite. It was example. valuable I mean, to Microsoft, even it, though LinkedIn didn't have, never pushed a profit, but then sold it for yep. $6 billion. And, and by the way, you know, as silly as that sounds, like who pays $26 billion for something earning no profit? I promise you, I haven't seen numbers recently, but I promise you that thing's worth $50 billion now. Um, I bet. You know, uh, I think Instagram was bought for a billion. And everybody went, what are you talking about? It's Instagram. And that's now worth $100 billion. So mm-hmm. the smart buyers, and that's the lead-in to the rest of your question, right? So there's multiple of EBITDA, but, but what a smart buyer needs to be able to see is the true intrinsic enterprise value. And not everyone has the eye for that and the nose for that. The eye and the nose for true enterprise value is to be able to look at a company and go, okay, so even at the upper end of an EBITDA multiple, let's call it six or seven, this company has some intrinsic assets that I, the savvy buyer, see that the, that the seller does not see for himself or herself. Mm-hmm. And that may sound like you're being deceptive. It's not. It's also, it's how wealth is made. You know, buy for a dollar something that's worth three. Buy for a dollar something that's worth 10. Um, mm-hmm. Even if you, you know, buy it for $2, if it's worth 10, there's still a good spread. And then if you layer on top of that, oh, I don't know, a global pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, th- there are buyer and seller cycles that happen even without a global pandemic that, that, that affects millions and millions of people. So now, you know, you talk about an, an incredible time to be an aggressive buyer over the mm-hmm. next 6, 12, even 18 months, I think, you know, by 2022, a lot of this will get sorted out, or at least we hope it will. We'll have the certainty of the elections behind this. We'll have, you know, hopefully we'll all be a lot smarter about how to be ready for the next one or if there's a second wave. But, you know. And we'll all an be on Zoom. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, Andrew. I have, I have utilized, you know, different platforms for so long. So Zoom, when it first came out, I don't know, it was like seven years ago or so, has never had a challenge with it. And then all of a sudden they went from, I think it was like 10 million users to 22 million users. Oh yeah. So well, in the last couple of weeks, it's been like the first time that Zoom kind of clunks up a little bit and is not. Well, here, it, here's the funny question is, do you know how many times in the last four days I've been asked, so are you wearing pants? And, um, <laughs> right. and, and, and then when I say no, I, I'll say, no, I'm not actually. Do you have any other questions? You know, <laughs> that usually cuts it off right there. I mean, 
you know, once you tell somebody the answer is no, they, they don't ask a follow-up question. That's um, hilarious. You know, and that's, and that's if you turn the Zoom video on. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan <laughs> of Zoom audio. I, I don't need to see it. Just hear you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, no, but, but. Kind of what but, are your, you know, maybe couple top points of looking at, you know, where individuals could either, you know, take their company and roll up a couple companies into it to be able to move forward or just if they're, you know, early on in the stages and being able to take advantage of the, you know, potential six to 12 to 18 right. months that you were talking about um, in regards to being a buyer and then answer sure. that one. And then we're going to shift gears and then we'll talk about the seller side, right? Because there's- Yeah, exactly. Guys. Yeah, because, well, there, there's one or two more buyer issues we should probably talk about, but they're going to be, if they affect both buyers and sellers. But to answer your more direct question, um, I have helped clients over the years craft an acquisition strategy. And when you craft an acquisition strategy, you know, you're, you're doing a couple of things. The first thing you're doing is building uh, screens and filters, right? You're building a series of acquisition criteria and screens and filters that will help you evaluate. You know, if there's a hundred people in the room and you're single and you'd like to meet one of them, you're going to have a, a number of screening criteria as to how to narrow from 100 down to two or three to one. And it's the same thing with M&A. You need to develop your likes and dislikes. Do I want this company to be in my backyard? Does it matter? Do they, are they in the same vertical as me or a similar vertical? Is this an add-on or a bolt-on? Um, are we going to go wide adding new products and services or are we going to go deep deepening our penetration into a business line that we're already in. And those, those are really important parts of an acquisition strategy. Even in a distressed time, you still have to have criteria. You don't want to be just willy-nilly. It's like going to the food store with the blinders on and just buying whatever you mm -hmm. touch and then looking at your food cart when you're done and going, what the hell did I just buy? <laughs> that's you know, when you go when you go right. to the grocery store hungry. That's just when precisely you should not a, do that. But that's a great but that's a great metaphor. Okay, that's exactly what you're doing. Don't don't be like the guy at the smorgasbord with five thousand things to eat and and either try and taste all of them and have a terrible experience or you're so confused by your choices that you were like deer in the headlines. Don't make any of them. So. You know, you want to say, all right, I'm starting with protein and I'm going for chicken and there's eight types of chicken and these are my ranking criteria. Um, you've got to have an acquisition plan. You've got to decide, are you going wide or deep? Why are you buying these companies? Are you truly filling in, you know, strategic, uh, missing strategic puzzle pieces of your overall business model? Don't buy something just because it's cheap, right? I mean, there's yeah. things out there that are going to be low price, but you don't buy them just because it's a low price if you don't need them. Or there's no strategic fit. Yeah, it'll so sit in your my, fridge and you'll never use it anyway. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I acquire um, it to begin it, with, unless there's a strategy around it. Exactly. So I think there's going to be a lot of intelligent buyers, but there's also going to be a lot of of unintelligent buyers. And the same thing happened in you know when we've had real estate dips. You know when when real estate market gets weak. And their sophisticated buyers know which buildings to buy, which properties to buy, which shopping centers and multifamily housing. And they're, they're, they're like, you know, they're, they're, they're going at this with real precision and real focus. 
but the uneducated, they're buying some shopping center out in, you know, the podunk suburbs that was a bad shopping center before the turndown happened, and it's going to be a bad shopping center after the turndown uh, happened, and now you're just stuck with a bad piece of property. So um, that's my best advice uh, for buyers is really map out um, your acquisition strategy, develop your screens and filters, develop your acquisition criteria, and then you articulate that to the source of financing, and they're either going to buy in or not, just like a regular mm -hmm. business growth plan. They're going to look at it and go, yeah, I believe in this team. I believe in this group of advisors. I believe that they will use not only their, their screens and filters to spot inherent value that, that sellers can't see, but then, then after closing, they'll be able to sprinkle their metaphorical magic fairy dust to drive post-closing value. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I definitely tracking with you there. So what would your tips on the seller side be, right? Because again, I had stated 90% of people sell because they're just burnt out and they're done. And I, you yep. know, it, and as much as it's going to probably be a buyer market for the next six, 12, 18 months. Um, it will be. It yeah, will. I'm, I'm certain mean, of that. It will be. So what? Except in a few areas. I mean, I mean, just to, before we get into your question, just so that I don't, you know, if, if you're thinking of selling your business and you're listening to this podcast, I don't want you to get too, too depressed. Plus, we're about to talk about you next. But um, there are certain sectors um, like, you know, healthcare, um, like cybersecurity and a few others that that aren't. Yes, it will still be a buyer's market, but you as a seller in an upticking industry will not feel that valuation down bump as much as somebody that's in hospitality or travel or tourism or, mm -hmm. you know, one of the industries that's been really, really, really beat up. Definitely. Um, okay. Definitely so the, the travel. Side, <laughs> yes, definitely the I mean, travel. Everybody's that, got to stay at home. You're not going to see much, uh, uh, you know, travel spending, right? No, no. They The travel and tourism probably has taken it as hard as you know, restaurant and hospitality, but at least even with restaurant and hospitality, a, a number of restaurants have, have done well with takeout and delivery. They've turned themselves into retail groceries. Mm -hmm. You know, with travel and tourism, you don't really have much of a plan B available to you the way that even the restaurant industry has uh, managed to keep its head above water with certain plan Bs and pivots. Mm -hmm. um, so let me, let me address a few tips for the seller before we run on a runway. Um, number one, you know, one of the first things that you're going to be do is your go-to-market strategy includes the preparation of an offering memorandum or a SIM, a confidential information memorandum, or at least a cool killer PowerPoint. I mean, really think through the, the days in a seller's market. Think of it as like selling a house, right? If it's a hot seller's market, yeah, put your house up for sale and it's going to be gone a day later because mm -hmm. you're in a good neighborhood. You don't have to fix this leaky bathroom. You don't have to put new wallpaper. You don't have to do it. the thing. You don't have yeah, to yeah. make I mean, everything look pretty. It's a pretty. hot market, and, and, and there's going to be 10 offers for your house. You know, uh, my wife and I were lucky enough to sell uh, uh, a house at the top of, of a seller's market, and we had a firm offer in before it was even listed on MLS. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was the easiest process ever. But in a buyer's market, you got to really dress up you got to dress up the cow. You got to put makeup on her. You got to, 
you know, eyeliner, I mean, uh, a nice hat and a bonnet, and, you know, you're going to have to take every single step to make that house as perfect as possible. Mm -hmm. So if you're selling into a buyer's market, you want to look around your company and say, you know, what staging am I going to have to do to make, you know, what problems do I need to fix? Now, if you burn out, you may say, hey, I'm selling sort of as is, you know, um, uh, let the buyer beware. But you, but but if you do that, you're you're just not going to fetch much of a price. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the decisions you have to make is what things are you willing to fix, um, and do you have time to fix them relative to um, uh, to what a buyer will pay. A second thing that is very important. I want to. I've been thinking about this this morning before our podcast. Uh, due diligence is going to change. You know, due diligence has already changed the types of risk areas. You know, if I were a buyer of a company right now, I'd be asking questions like, did you have an emergency preparedness plan yeah, in place? It? Yeah. You know, I mean, did what did you do when the crisis hit? Did you sit there like a deer in the headlights? Did you at least try and adapt? Did you have a strategic planning, planning meeting a year ago that said, what if there's a terrorist attack or a global pandemic or or some terrible flu, strain of the flu, which is, you know, what this is. I mean, what, what did you have any foresight to protect your business and have a plan B and ability to pivot? Because if you were the deer in the headlights, it's not going to take, you know, it, it's not going to impress your buyers. Um, if you could at least say to buyers, hey, I built a business model that's adaptable and flexible enough to be responsive to an emergency. Um, and I did my best, even though I'm burnt out or even though I have health issues or even though I'm getting old, uh, which is also, you know, remember, we have all those aging baby boomers, like you said at the beginning of the show. And so, um, you know, did these companies show the foresight to put a plan in place? Because remember, if I'm a buyer of those companies, I'm going to want to know those companies are capable of morphing if this thing comes back or some other event comes Something back else happens. some event of bioterrorism. I mean, you know, I want to know that, that what I'm buying is flexible enough. Think of it back to selling a house. If the house is built of bricks and a hurricane came through and the hurricane barely touched the house, then I'm demonstrating to a buyer that my house is rock solid. And if another hurricane comes, it's likely to have the same effect. But if my house is built, you know, from sticks and wood and, and was blown away by the hurricane, then how much money am I really going to be able to get for it? You know, or how much assurance if I rebuild it with sticks, mm -hmm. how much assurance can I give to a buyer that it won't get blown away again when the next hurricane comes? Cause guess what? If you're in a hurricane area, hurricanes are going to come. So, yeah. so look, we that would learn be, even more from the three little pigs. I know very much. It, it, it really <laughs> is three little pigs. That's it exactly really right. is when you look at it and go, well, I love it. Like thinking about the intangible assets, the tangible assets, you know, market cap versus enterprise value, uh, which is That's again, right. two sides of the same coin, but it's a really thin coin. And then looking at, you know, from the buyer or seller side, right, on the acquisition aspect of it, uh, and then also on the selling aspect, what can you do in order to uh, have them feel that you, your company has staying power, that you can pivot, that you are flexible, that you thought about those things? I mean, that's exactly. awesome. Exactly. And, and the other thing that's going to come up is 
what we talked about in the joint podcast with Elena, um, uh, which I certainly would refer any listeners of this one to listen to if you haven't already. In that podcast, we did talk about culture and engagement Mm -hmm. and the impact of those things. I just had uh, uh, a radio interview earlier in the day where the interviewer asked me about the impact of culture, um, the impact of COVID-19 on culture, and then ultimately, how did the impact of COVID-19 on culture affect enterprise value? And that's exactly what we're talking about here is if your culture was already weak and now everyone's working from home and connecting via Mm -hmm. Zoom, that's not helping your culture. I mean, that's only making it weaker. And if your culture's weaker, then your innovation is weaker, your productivity is weaker, your uh, customer service is weaker, your brand is diluted. And guess what? None of those things make you fetch a higher purchase price if you're on the sell side. So, you know, you have an additional challenge now as a business leader of protecting the most important asset you have, which is your brand and your culture, um, at a time when brand and culture is taken a beating as we adjust to a work from home economy, at least for the short and possibly medium term. Um, Absolutely. Cannot agree with you more. And, and it can bring you together, right? Or it can completely displace your entire team, depending on exactly. where you started from. So well, I've got is- one more, I've got one more important seller tip and then I'll, I'll go wherever you want to go with your next question. You got it. And that is, there's a notion in M&A for sellers called a recast, a recast. And a recast is when a seller sits down and redoes their financials around how the entity would, would perform in the arms of the buyer. So if I'm a small business and I've been running my kid's private school and two of my cars and my country club all through the business, and that's been depressing my EBITDA, I back those expenses out mm. to show the recasted EBITDA so that a buyer gets a true picture of what my EBITDA would be if I wasn't loading it up like many small businesses with personal expenses. Yep. So putting aside the tax, the, the tax consequences of that, um, <laughs> it, it's reality. But so now I've been playing around in my head with this idea of a COVID-19 recast. Okay. So if I were a seller in 2021, and I was looking at my 2020 expenses, and I was saying, hey, wait a second, is there anything weird here? You know, like I had to buy everyone a second laptop, or I had to do this, or I had to do that, or I had to buy more insurance, or, you know, is there any COVID-19 expense item that I should be including in my 2021 recast as things normalized and I don't really have the answer to that question yet but I at least am smart enough to ask the question yeah um, well that'd be interesting I, to see how finance I think the answer is yes. look at that yeah. I think the answer is right. yes you know and the same applies um, one of the other things that buyers of course are always very interested in is you know everyone asks us like what's the health of your pipeline you know what's your what's the work you have in the waterfall what what work is coming down the road that is relevant to the price I ultimately pay for your business? Well, for many companies right now, your pipeline is not terribly impressive. You know, this is not a time where people are lined up at the door to buy non-essential products and services. So if you are selling into 2021, as an example, and your pipeline is your cupboard, if you will, is looking kind of empty, you may want to try and 
you know, recast that a bit and say, had it not been for COVID-19, my pipeline would be this much full. And I have every, I have every doubt, no doubt that we'll be able to restore that pipeline as things normalize. Because, you know, if at the time I open your cupboard, your cupboard is bare, I'm going to make valuation decisions around the bare cupboard. Mm-hmm. If by the time I open your cupboard, you've begun to restock new projects in the pipeline, then at least maybe I'll give you some valuation credit for those. Yeah, so that'll be I interesting think, uh, on the buyer side, the seller side, and the financing side. Exactly, right? exactly. That's, well, so as always. I think there's some interesting questions. That, yeah, there you know, are. M&A to, will change. Definitely continue this conversation, Andrew. As always, it's awesome to have you on the show. I love uh, the different facets that you look at and ask these amazing questions. And until next time, sir, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Great, great podcast. I hope everybody enjoys it who's listening. Thank you for listening to the People Catalyst podcast. And remember, it's a good life.